love to connect with you uh, beyond this time. And so you, you can go to our website, which is easy to find, matthewstable.church. So instead of .com, just .church. And also on that website, you can scroll down there and find other ways to contact us, sign up for our mailing list, or reach out to me at rusty at matthewstable.church. Well, during this time, we like to do what we call passing the peace. And it's been a long time. Even when we were gathering in July, we didn't get to actually hug one another, shake hands, give a holy fist bump or high five. And we want to grieve that. God created people to be together, not through screens, but face-to-face and in person. And so we are honestly sad to be in this season. And in some ways, even angry. We're passionate to be able to be back together. And so our being here, communicating through screen, is not due to any uh, any lack of desire on our part as a church to be together in person. But we're simply seeking the best that we can without being scientific or pandemic experts to, to be good fellow neighbors and to, uh, to love our community and our people and to do the best that we can to, to, to get this thing to a point where we can be together. So that's our heart and hope that you understand it. And as we pass the peace with one another, we pray that in a time where there's much division over this issue and other issues in our culture, that the peace of Christ would help us to be able to join together in both honesty and hope. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So from us to you, we say, The peace of Christ be with you, if you're saying that to us, and also with you. And you can take a moment right now as you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5 to pass that peace with someone near you if you would like. Well, all right, Nehemiah chapter 5. This is one of those chapters that has so much in it that we will be able, we won't be able to begin to answer all the questions. So what I want to ask you to do, and we may do this going forward, is if you're watching this, I believe there's a way that you can comment on the side. And so the beauty of that is I cannot see those comments right now. So you could write stupid point heresy, uh, blasphemy, or all kinds of things. And I'll just sit here and have no clue that's how you feel. And then afterwards, I can have a mental breakdown when I read it. But all jokes aside, we don't want to be in this sort of self-protective posture as a church that doesn't allow conversation, doesn't allow exploration of deeper issues. And so uh, whether in those comments or through email or, or some other way, as we go through the sermon Feel free to just to put in there, like say, hey, I have a question about this, or what about this? And afterwards, I'll get my security of Christ closed all over me, and I'll look at those, and then I'll, I'll try to respond to you. If you're someone that I have your contact information, if I don't, feel free to leave it. Because these things are too important for us to simply have a, a little Sunday morning thought experiment. We want the Word of God to shape our lives. And so I want to encourage you to do that. We're going to begin, as we always do, just reading God's Word. So Nehemiah chapter 5, like I said, we're not ever able to go into all the detail that God's Word warrants, but we want to at least be able to read through the whole text and ask God's Spirit to do the work that only He can do. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. 
And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over their people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. We thank you, God, that he is such a good king. And in tenderness, he saw us while we were rebels running from him. We thank you, God, that you have loved us, that we have blamed you, accused you of so much evil in our lives. We thank you, God, that you've provided for us. You've loved us even when we've not shown that same love and provision and mercy towards others. And we pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would take this word and pierce deep into our hearts so that we might live as the holy people of God you've chosen called us to be in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. There's a movie that kind of haunts me that will date me a little bit. It's called Sleeping with the Enemy. Now, some of you guys remember this, this scary movie of this lady, Julia Roberts, who lives in this mansion by the sea, who has a life that for all practical purposes looks like is where you would want to be. She lacks nothing. She lives in the most safe house, in one sense, that you might consider possible but yet, as viewers soon find, she lives in the most unsafe house possible. She lives with an oppressive, abusive husband who provides an appearance that everything is perfect for the world to see. And yet, she lives in fear, in anxiety, and in the sense of beaten down shame every day of her life. So the movie's called Sleeping with the Enemy. Things look great 
terms of appearances, but on the inside, the injustice is worse than many people could imagine in the world. As I thought about Nehemiah chapter 5, the reason that 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 movie and that story came to my mind is because a lot of times what we can do as Christians and as the church is we can focus on appearances. We can focus, even as they did in the book of Nehemiah, on on the so-called walls, on what we consider to be the, the big events and the big vision of the mission. And yet all around us are our people. People who are living lives in fear, living lives in lack. And it's not that we're hitting them or beating them, it's that we don't notice. And when we notice, we don't really care. And oftentimes as churches and Christians, we're creating all of these new initiatives and all of these new events and have all of these new ideas that give us the appearance of polish, of productivity, of professionalism. Because it keeps us from the brokenness that would enter our hearts and our lives and the cost that it might bring if we acknowledge the poverty that is around us. Now this begs the question that we have to take a few minutes, although it will extend things, is is to ask, well, what is the mission of the kingdom of God, of the people of God, of the church of God? What is the mission of God? We've often used this phrase, and I don't know who we stole it from. I've heard it a hundred places. It's not so much that that the church has a, a mission, but that God's mission has a church. So it's very important for us as the church to understand what is this mission that God is all about that He has created local churches. Not just individual disciples, but local churches to be about. Uh, I've got a slide here that was back that has these sort of seven moves in the mission, eight moves in the mission of God. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, he'll take an hour just talking about that. But I want to I move very quickly as I can through these to think about what is the mission of God. So from the very beginning, and these are from Vaughn Roberts, a great little book on on how to read the Bible in light of the whole story of God called God's Big Picture. These are his eight sort of movements that he lays out that all conveniently start with a P and make it very easy to remember. The first is the pattern of the kingdom. What was God's mission for humanity, for his people, when he put them on earth before sin ever entered the world? It was that they would be his image bearers who multiply and fill the earth with his glory. So if you thought God's desire was just Adam and Eve, we're going to always live as humanity within this little Garden of Eden, then you've misread Genesis chapter 1. He tells them very clearly, and you know the verses, to fill the earth. To fill the earth with what? To fill the earth with people who live and love and work for the glory of God in right relationship with Him, in right relationship with each other, and in right relationship with creation. We know that sin enters the world, and so we come to the perished kingdom. And what amazes us is that even as people were moved out from the garden, is that that original mission of God is is never denied or denounced. But now, instead of living it in the fullness of how God created us to exist, there's this shadow, we might say, of sin and suffering that brings along with it not just this empowerment to survive, to, to thrive, that is, but now this reality that we have to both figure out how to thrive and survive. And so in this world of survival, of sin, of suffering, and the spiraling out of control, God moves us to what we might consider the promised kingdom. He calls Abraham. And he calls Abraham to go out to Canaan, to this land, to to form a people. You see, God's goal from the very beginning is that His mission would not just take place through individuals, but through a people, through a family. And now this family would be more than an Adam and Eve family. Now this family would be a family that we would know as Israel. And their mission was to go and to be a light to the nations. That is in a world of people who are just suffering and just trying to survive and who are, who are full of rebellion and, and fear and guilt and shame that they could look in on this people and they could say, wow, 
how it's supposed to be. And so we move to this partial kingdom as, as Israel is formed and delivered and redeemed. And so God gives them a law. And this law is to set them apart from the nations. And this law is led by the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. He gives them tabernacle that will become a temple where the people will meet with God and praise Him for His goodness and His grace. And they're to live in these lives of, of, of love and worship so that when the nations look in, they see something different that calls them to come and stream to Zion. But we know instead of the people of God living in distinction, they decide to live in disobedience and they are exiled from the land. They go out among the nations and even among the nations they're called to be distinct and to live differently. But the prophets, as we move to the prophesied kingdom, prophesy of a day that a king will come who will reunite Israel and Israel will be, as Isaiah says, a light to the nations. Because the mission of God's people continues to be to live as a people who demonstrate the glory of God so that they might declare even what Isaiah says, the gospel of God. And as Jesus arrives on the scene as the perfect Adam in Israel, he is the fulfillment of the law and the temple and the kings. And as Jesus comes, he displays for all the world the mission of God in his own life as he lives with great love. And particularly, he loves the least. He proclaims a gospel that says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, but then he lives a gospel where the kingdom of God is seen. And he dies for it. Because the religious establishment and the political establishment that surrounded him could not handle the distinction that he brought into this world that caused people's hearts to be transformed and changed and challenged all that this world considered to be sacred. But he rises from the dead to rebuild the people of God. It's no coincidence he's called 12 disciples that he will build this renewal of who God's people are. And he sends them out into the world filled with the Spirit to be his witnesses. Witness is not merely a proclamation, but a witness is also a demonstration of the word of Jesus, of the way of Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul himself said when they're clarifying the gospel, yes, get the gospel right, but be sure to remember the poor. The church is giving this call to both declare and display the kingdom of God as its mission. Until one day when we move to the perfected kingdom, when Jesus returns, but the mission of God really doesn't end. Because now all of eternity is spent with people filling the earth to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. Now I give that context because it's a big question when we come to this point that we want to drive home today is that the mission of God is not merely that we would just proclaim the gospel, but that we would display the gospel. That the good news of the reign of Jesus is not just about us aligning our words rightly, but about aligning our lives rightly so that we might be a light unto the nations. That we are called not merely to create converts, but we are called to make disciples, those who follow Jesus in the stuff of everyday life, and to do that not merely as individual disciples, but to do that as a church, that we are to love people, love the world, and particularly love those who are impoverished as a signpost, as a witness that the kingdom of God is at hand. Nehemiah was building walls to protect God's people. But the people needed protection not only from the outside, but the inside. And so as the church, we must address poverty and justice inside the church, around the church, if we are truly to be the church for the glory of God and on the mission of God. 
How do we do that? A few ways we see in our text today. The first one is that we must acknowledge the cries of poverty and injustice that are all around us. They are all around us. Nehemiah does this. We notice verse 1, the outcry. There arose a great outcry of the people. There's this big vision that's happening. Everybody's working to build this wall, to rebuild this city. But the poor are being overlooked. And actually in the building of it, more poor are being created. So the regular people and the wives raised this complaint against their Jewish brothers. And we're going to see these Jewish brothers are those who were in power and who were exploiting and ignoring the situation that was at hand. I think it's very important here that we see there was an outcry of the people and it just the Spirit puts this line in here and of their wives. The wives are feeling the real pressure of the stuff of everyday life in the home and within that realm of domestic economy. And they speak up. And oftentimes we need those who are not with our heads in the clouds about the mission of the church, but those who are actually living in the everyday stuff, which is often the women and often the wives, who need to say, wait a minute, you're forgetting the real experience that's going on here. And they give these reasons, some that may be acceptable here. They say in verse 2, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So we know in the background here that a famine had been in this area. And when famines hit, it is those who are impoverished that often suffer the worst. Because we've got to face it. Those who are in power are even the most gracious in the world. Even the nicest people in the nicest churches what do they say first? We're going to help people, but only after we've made sure we've set back enough for ourselves first. So we'll help others. We've got to take care of ourselves first. Because if we don't take care of ourselves, then who will be left to take care of others? And so however you want to justify it, it hits the poor the hardest. COVID-19, hitting the hardest. People laid off from work. Usually it's the factories. Usually it's the places where more people are piled into work. The wages are lower. Schools, who's it hurting the worst? Which children? It's the children without Wi-Fi. It's the children without adequate devices. It's hard. It is what it is. It's not to be something that we just ignore. There's also international reasons. We know in, in the book of Nehemiah here, they're rebuilding the city. Basically, everybody around them hates them. To the north, Samaria. We've seen these, these Arab tribes led by Gershom. We see Tobiah, the Ammonite, from, from every corner. So they're not participating. They're not going to help them. And then also there's just the rebuilding of the city. Everybody's working on this stuff. Probably a lot of the men have left the fields. And they've left it again to the women and the children to kind of make up for things. There's already a famine. There's already no help. And it's just reached a boiling point. And so they cry out. And there's these unacceptable realities that the people need to hear and Nehemiah needs to hear is their leader. The first thing is is the people aren't getting the help that they need. They're not getting the help they need. They have no food to eat. Verse 3. The people are having to mortgage their property with interest to survive. So they likely own their land, own their, own their homes, but now they're having to get mortgages. That is now they're relinquishing true ownership of your home. So we live in this house. Somebody said, do you, do you own or rent? Well, we own, but we're paying the bank a big payment every month that if we don't pay it, guess who owns our house? The bank literally owns our house. And so they're moving in this position now to where they once had this land and these homes, now that they're mortgaging it, and now these lenders who we see are their Jewish brothers. What's going on here is they're losing generational wealth. This is not a category maybe a lot of us think about or we take for granted, but generational wealth is huge. You may think that you like don't have a lot certain seasons, but a lot of us say, well, I could always sell my house. Or I have a, a parent who own a home. All, all that's just being taken away and putting them in such a vulnerable situation. And on top of that, verse 4 says, they're having to now go in debt, having to borrow extra money to pay the king's tax. So there's a Persian tax because this is technically a Persian 
uh, zone or under their control. Remember, Artaxerxes has sent Nehemiah, Nehemiah back there. And so there's a famine, no cash crops, they mortgage their land, they're having to pay these taxes. And so what does this lead to? Verse 5, the most horrible part of this, is they're having to put their kids into slavery. Now this is not, don't, don't think uh, directly American uh, chattel slavery. This is debt slavery. So we can't pay off our debt, so we're going to send our sons or our daughters to go and work for you until the debt's paid off. And some commentaries would say that the, the worst kind of slavery you could think about in terms of those daughters was likely happening. And that's, that's why it's said here, some of our daughters have already been enslaved. Because that's where the money was. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, it's not the nations that are doing this. It's the Jewish brothers. Their brothers and sisters who they live in such proximity to are suffering and are using it as an opportunity to take advantage of them. Can't you just imagine them saying, it's just business. Work harder and you can be like me. These are systemic issues leading to generational poverty and Nehemiah hears it and acknowledges it and so do we. We are rightly having a major discussion in our country right now, again, for the trillionth time, and we need to have it probably a trillion more times around injustices surrounding racism. But I remember being at a conference, uh, the Evangelical Theological Society in Atlanta in 2008, and there was a, this, this was 2008, so you can't lump this in with how everybody wants to blame stuff today. And a, a speaker had just finished giving some big intellectual talk, delivering some paper on Jonathan Edwards, and, and someone uh, raised the question and said, well, how, how can we put Jonathan Edwards out there as any type of example to follow or with any type of theology to acknowledge, considering the fact that he owns slaves? And that's a valid question. But I'll never forget what the speaker said. I don't know. If he wasn't ready for it, he was good on his toes. We were in this beautiful hotel. You know where they have these conferences. And everybody had rooms there. I mean, everybody's just looks great. You know, just fat, happy Americans. And he said, that's a good question. He said, I wonder if a hundred years from now, when the locus of the church, and it may have already happened, will moves from America to somewhere, say, like Africa, and they're really living out the kingdom of God. They look back and they see us meeting here in this hotel with all the costs that it, it costs to put on. Uh -oh. On this Evangelical Theological Society conference. And all the meals and the, the nice vehicles and comfy lives that we're all living while they're all starving. I wonder if they'll look back and say, why in the world would we want to read any of the papers anybody in this room wrote? Because poverty is all around us. And we're tiptoeing around it with all kinds of reasons. That we don't want to acknowledge. It's overwhelming, but we've got to be humble enough to listen, not to be defensive, entitled, or judgmental, self-righteous, competitive in our response. Listen with me to some real stories I've heard. I've not made this up. Someone has told me something to the effect of, why, why should I even try? You, you tell me to get a job, but guess where all the jobs mainly start? Third shift. Guess what? There's no public transportation that runs for third shift in Cleveland. What about child care? Just leave my kids by themselves. Well, after I walk to my third shift job, 
and leave, leave my babies at home by themselves? What about government benefits that will get taken away if I get a raise for doing really good at work? What about those court appearances where I have that fine to pay because I, I didn't, you know, have, have my tail light fixed when I did get my car? And, I, and a true story, I go to, they tell me to be there Thursday morning at 9 o'clock and I show up and I sit there all day long after I took off work and had to find somebody to watch my kids and they don't even call my name. And they don't tell me they're not going to call my name. And I do that six plus times. I, I went with somebody in a similar situation. I remember being like, how's this guy supposed to work? Why don't you call and say we're not going to call your name today? It's not on the docket. And the person literally says to me, we don't have a person who works that desk. Then I have to pay, borrow money from payday lenders whose interest has me trapped. My $200 loan I'm now paying for, for multiple years. I rent from a slumlord because at least I can get a rent from him with, without having to have a perfect clean record and history of all these things. I can't get a job because I have a tattoo on my neck. Virtual school? Have you been to my house? You mock that we have a government phone, but my kids can't do school on that. Race? Well, you can't even handle how race meshes with poverty. We're not even going to go there. Try being an undocumented immigrant who was brought here under slats of wood in the back of a truck when they were five years old. I'm so afraid of getting pulled over. I quit my last job because I couldn't fix my car. And they actually did take my dad. And by the way, I pay taxes under a false ID, but I get no benefits from it. And here's what some things I've heard about how the church plays into this, because that's, that's really what we can take account for is the church. That's our mission. I mean, we need to care about the world. We need to speak power, particularly in a democratic republic. Have all your arguments about that. But the church should be different. We should be the place where the people can go and say, well, nobody else gets it, but you guys, you guys will get it. And still, I've heard things like this. I often feel judged when I walk in the door, not because people aren't friendly, but because I know nobody in here is going to actually want to be my friend. Seems like you all expect me to have to have a college education to understand anything. You plan things that I can't afford to participate in. You really don't care to listen to my whole story. That you'd love to make me a project or a photo op. You come and serve me and, and you might come back next year. You care about my immediate needs, but what about my generational wealth? What about my retirement? What about my kids not just getting a backpack from you, but from help with school? You build your buildings that could more than remodel and sell or rent to own or just rent quality homes to families like mine. You act as if remembering the poor is the government's job and then you gripe about big government. That was the one thing the Apostle Paul said to do. Most of us aren't looking for a handout, but a hand up. But it's easy just to give up and think that all your worth is a handout, so why not? If you've never heard things like this, then maybe you've never asked. And maybe people stop talking because it just seems pointless. I'm glad it didn't seem pointless to Nehemiah. And we see his response in verses 6 through 13. I've got a slide that has these responses on it, and I have to move quickly, of course. And I'm, and I'm probably, anyway, my fancy words here and all that, probably proving the point. But anyway, 
He responds at least from eight angles. In verse 6, he responds incarnationally. We see he's present with the people. So the people speak, and we don't need to go over this like he listens. He's present. He's not just... He could just be listening to the people in power. He could just be listening to the people that he knows that he really needs to get the job done. But he doesn't. He listens to the people. He listens to the, to the wives who in this culture have, have no position to talk and probably have actually even risked their place by speaking up. He listens. This is incarnational action. It's being present. It's listening. And then he, he, he responds emotionally. Notice verse 6 says, He was angry. We, we think that a mark of maturity is not having emotions. This is not true of Nehemiah, and we'll see it's not true of Jesus. He's angry when he hears this. I don't think unrighteously so, but the, the positive side of anger is he's passionate that this be righted. He's not saying we just need to look at some facts here. No, he feels strongly about what is going on. He also responds intellectually. So he's, he's, he's angry, but notice verse 7, he doesn't have an outburst. It says, I took counsel within myself. So he responds not only in emotionally, but intellectually. He's going to counsel with himself. He's going to think about this. He's going to calm down. He's going to respond from the heart, but also level-headed. And then his response is volitionally. That is, he takes action. He moves with his will. He leads with his hands He's going to not just have this sort of public posturing, oh, I care, cry tears, come up with a plan. No, he's going to act. And he does it in a bold way. He brings his charges personally against them, and then he calls this big assembly to talk about it. I mean, this is risky action. He's calling everybody on the, car on the carpet. He responds biblically, though. We see this as verse... Verses 8 and 9. He says, as far as we've able, we've brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nation. So God has led us back and we've led to come back from exile. But he says, but now you're doing the same thing. It actually looks like it's worse in here than it was out there. And if you read, this was one of the great reasons the people were sent into exile was because they were abusing the poor and oppressed among themselves. Nehemiah brings them back into the story of how God redeemed them. And the exile, you can't think about the exile without thinking about the exodus. That God has always heard the cries of His people as they were oppressed and impoverished. And He has acted and called them out to be a people who enjoy life and who flourish together as a family. He connects them to that story. He speaks with the clarity of of the kingdom in verse 9. They're to be distinct. But notice he says, what you're doing is not good. You're not living in the fear of God. And what all this is going to do is provoke the taunts of the nations. Look at those people. They're, they're not any different. Nehemiah says, we've forgotten our purpose to be distinct. Then Nehemiah responds in exemplary fashion. Verse 10. Now, there's some debate on whether Nehemiah is saying he's guilty here or whether Nehemiah is saying you need to do it like I'm doing. But either way, it's a great example. They're both very humble. Nehemiah is saying, I've, I've lent money and grain to people. And then he says, let's abandon this exacting of interest. So again, commentators are divided whether Nehemiah was doing that before or wasn't, but either way, he's leading by example. And then he responds practically. This is verses 10 and 11. So he gives an alternative way forward. He's not just, as we've said this from the beginning, this is one of the beauties of the book of Nehemiah, is Nehemiah is not just a deconstructionist, but he's a reconstructionist. He's not just one that comes to tear down the system. He's one that is willing to stick his neck out to rebuild something more beautiful. And so he practically gives a way forward. Verse 10, stop it. Stop doing this. Verse 11, 
he says, make it right. Return to them their fields. Notice he says, this very day. Very practical. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do right now. Stop using people. Start loving people. Stop being greedy. Start being generous. And here's some very practical ways that you can do it. And then lastly, he responds accountably. So he knows how we all are. And he, he brings the priest in, in verse 12, and says, Alright, we're going to make this official. Publicly official, bring the priest. They're going to swear to do that they're going to do this. And then he, he makes this statement of prophetic symbolism where he shakes out the fold of his garment and says, So may God shake out every man from his house and labor who does not keep this promise. And they do it. They do it. Nehemiah's approach is multifaceted in these eight angles of commitment and to some degree complexity, but they're all viewed by a care to live out the mission of God's kingdom. Central to the mission of God's kingdom is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, who lived, died, rose, and now reigns. But the mission of God's people is not merely to declare that, but to demonstrate that. There's a new approach today that's unlike Nehemiah's that's often called something to effect of just preach the gospel. That's something that was never said in the whole of the Bible, though. The Good Samaritan parable is not the parable of just preach the gospel to the man in the ditch. Jesus' teaching on healing and his examples was not, don't distract from the Sabbath. It was actually the opposite. You've forgotten the purpose of the Sabbath. Imagine having problems in your marriage. Your wife, say, your husband brings them up and you're like, you know, honey, all we need right now is to preach the gospel. Imagine parenting problems. We need to quit focusing on all these practical issues like bedtimes, screen times, culture and commitments and conflict changes. Imagine you're treated unfairly at work and your boss is a Christian and he says, I just want to remind you of Jesus crucified and risen. Now quit complaining and get back to work. How does that make you feel when a child is abused? Some of you are all about just preach the gospel when it comes to issues of poverty and oppression. But when it comes to issues like abortion, all of a sudden you want to get really political. And you say, oh, but those are real injustices. And when you say that, all you've done is just revealed your heart. In Acts chapter 6, as the church is being built and going forward, there arises a dispute that the the Gentile widows are not being treated favorably like the Jewish widows in the distribution of food. So we have this picture of both poverty and race brought together in the life of the church. And what the apostles did not say was, that's a distraction from our mission. No, they said, yes, we must give ourselves to the word and prayer. But they create this group of what many believe to be the first deacons to say, this is important that the church not only talks about this, but the church organizes to meet this need, to make sure that the poor get the food they need and that race is not an issue in getting it to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these through 12, these passages that are famous about the Lord's table and fencing the Lord's table, that is saying, when can you come, when can you not come? We've made that into this sort of radically individualistic affair where we stop and say, do I have any unconfessed sin? If I don't, then maybe I don't need to partake of the supper. I want to challenge anybody to go and read those chapters and see the real issue at hand was the fact that those who were poor and impoverished were being put at the back of the line of the Lord's table. As they celebrated this supper, those who weren't able to bring as much were not able to have a seat as prominent. And Paul says, through the Spirit, that that is a disgrace to the gospel of Jesus Christ where all people are welcome and equal at this table. And he says, if you're going to come thinking because you have more, you get a better seat, then he says, you should withstand from the table. 
What he's saying is that those who come to the Lord's table, but they ignore the least among us, those are the ones who forgot the gospel and need to be careful they do not partake of the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. In all these ways that Nehemiah acts, we see Jesus acting incarnationally. As we read earlier, He became poor. He left heaven's riches and comfort to come and live here and have no place to lay His head. Oh, He was emotional. You know, we think about Jesus turning over the temple, the tables in the temple. And, you know, if you grew up in a church like mine, you think it was because maybe they were selling raffle tickets or, or something in the, in the foyer. It was because the nations, it was because the people who were considered not to be as prominent, they had, they had begun to sell, they had begun to make worship more convenient for those whom it was. So it's like instead of having to go over here and buy the, the animals you need for the sacrifices, this will be much more economically and practically better for those who are more, uh, you know, just have it more together. They can just buy them right here in the courts. And, you know, those people who might be coming to pray who don't have a lot to offer, you know, they can find somewhere else to go. And Jesus got ticked off and ran them out. Not so that they weren't going to advertise for a car wash they were having so that everybody had a place in the place of God. Oh, Jesus was intellectual. He didn't get sucked in by the rain of emotions, but he could respond to a question with a question, with a statement, with a story. He was volitional. Oh, he acted just like we're to act. He loved where he was. You see, the first place that you need to act is you don't need to walk out of here and say, I'm going to read 10 new books on poverty. You can do that if you want to. And I'm going to come up with the best plan you just need to start where you are. You need to know your neighbors. If you're in a missional community, your missional community has a common mission where there's people to be loved and listened to and let into your life. If you work in your, what we call your everyday mission, there are people who you can work with. They're your neighbors that you have. It's amazing. I mean, Jesus didn't walk around with this like grand plan. He just lived where he was. And it's biblical. This isn't some Marxist agenda. People have always accused when they read the early book of Acts as, oh, let's be careful now, brother. That sounds like socialism. It's always been accused as such. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. This isn't about fitting into political categories and tribes. This is about being the people of God. This is about loving one another. This is about saying that I will give up what I have to help others have what they don't. It's exemplary. We don't excuse ourselves from this. It's practically and it's accountably. I have a text here I'd like to read. I know I'm going well over my time before we get to the end, but I just want to read it. Melanie, if you'll click through to the end. We see Nehemiah ends with this accountability. Listen to what Jesus has to say. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, there He will sit on His glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So I know some of you are going to say, it says my brothers, it's not talking about everybody. Well, just start with your brothers, your brother, Christian brothers and sisters all around us in this city who are in need of all these things. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The strong words 
High accountability. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they're going to answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? We know we would have did it if it was you because you matter, Jesus. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are sobering words. So it leads us to our last point. Not only must we acknowledge or act, but we've got to anchor our response not in our goodness or our generosity, the only way we're going to be able to move forward in this very, very weird and complex, unique culture of prosperity we live in is we're going to have to anchor our generosity in Jesus. We see, we see in the book of Nehemiah, we're just being pointed to Jesus in such powerful ways. And in these last verses, 14 through 19, we see Nehemiah's leadership leading us to Jesus as the pattern for us leading and living from our own places of power and privilege in a world of poverty and injustice. We see in verse 14, Nehemiah is the governor. He has this great position of privilege, and yet he lays it down. He points us to Jesus again, the one who lays down his place to come to us. John chapter 1, I love the way how the message translates this. It says, the, the Word of God, in, in our translation, the Word of God became flesh. Eugene Peterson says, God moved into the neighborhood. Nehemiah lays down the privilege of his rights for his food allowance. He lays down his power to lord it over people. Just Jesus shows up into this world as the one who says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And we see Nehemiah in this text. He has to throw this giant meal for all these people. 150 people. Most likely this table was full of officials. It would be as if he imagined somebody's a big politician because Nehemiah's governor. And he has to host all these fancy people all the time. And so all of these animals have to be killed and prepared and it's super expensive. It's like when we watch these big governmental affairs on TV. And sometimes maybe if you're like me, you think, well, I'm glad that our tax dollars went to that. What Nehemiah says here is that he knew the burden that the people were under, and so he paid for it all out of his own pocket. Because he feared the Lord. He was willing to lay down the privilege and the right even that he had to love the people well so that they didn't have to bear the burdens while he lived in comfort. Get a new scarf there. <laughs> if this doesn't point us to Jesus, I don't know what does. He knew we couldn't bear the cost to sit at his table. And Jesus died for us and for our sins and for our sufferings, not so that we might merely have an eternal life, although he did but so that we might right now enjoy the love of the Father, the welcome of His family. He sends the Holy Spirit into people, whether they've got a dime to their name or they're the wealthiest person that has lived. If they've humbled themselves and brought their need to Him, and at His table there is no one more prominent, at his table, all is welcomed by grace and grace alone. But it wasn't cheap grace. It was grace that cost him his life. It was grace that was given to us greedy, boarding, jealous, competitive, comfort idolaters. Because he loved us where we were. We've got to anchor our response in this. I want to invite you in response to remember how generous Jesus has been to you and will be to you. If we really act on this, it's going to be hard. 
But we need to cut out the middlemen. It might sound corny. I know it does. I don't even want to say it. But when I was in high school, we all wore the little WWJD braces, bracelets. If you think that's done, maybe you could just change it to what did Jesus do. I want to challenge you. Don't look to see what your tribe does, your political party does. When you encounter this issue of poverty and justice, I just want you to say, I'm going to go to the Gospels and I'm going to say, how did Jesus respond? He's my tribe. I want to ask you to sincerely look to cut out from your budget to be generous both spontaneously and strategically. Have some ready to be spontaneous and be strategic about some. I want to ask us to cut out from our schedules to make our tables more like Jesus's. I'd almost like to call a moratorium in our church of inviting other people in our church over unless somebody else is going to be there who doesn't know the good news of the family of Jesus and his love for those in poverty and injustice. I want to ask us to cut ourselves out from our comfort to identify with others when it's hard. Yeah, I know, I've heard, I've heard from some of you and I've experienced that, but we're just so different. Think of the chasm that Jesus stepped across and the differenceness that's a word with us to love us. I want to ask us to make sure that we don't live lives, build churches, missional communities that have the appearance that we care we protect, but on the inside, the people who really matter aren't being loved. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to us. And we pray now, God, that you would help us to respond to your word and to your spirit, not out of guilt, shame, or fear, but grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, we are not able to come to the Lord's table as we would if we were in person, but we are able to respond. And kind of adapted some of our questions here just to make it a little more simple for us in this time. As I'd like to ask everyone if you would just close your eyes and bow your head. And ask yourself a couple questions first. Where do I need to trust God's grace right now? The Father's not crossing his arms and shaking his head at you, however you lived in response to those in poor. He loves you. And he has grace for you. He doesn't want you to, to love the poor to earn his favor. He wants you to learn to love because you have his favor through Jesus, his perfect love. Secondly, where do I need God's power? Where do I need the Holy Spirit to fill me, enable me to make change in my life? So that I can be a disciple. It's not merely a convert, but it's learning to observe everything that Jesus commanded. Ask him now for that power. Let's respond now in song.
Hey everyone, let, in light of uh, what God had from His Word to share through Rusty this morning, I uh, just want to encourage you not to forsake coming together, uh, both to be known and uh, for us to see how we can live that out with each other, uh, but also uh, for our missional communities, not only are they coming together to do that uh, with one another, but they're also uh, coming together so that those in their common mission are known and that we can enter into their lives where they are. Uh, so. Uh, you can contact um, these various leaders, or Rusty, or myself, in order to uh, find out how to how to get connected. But uh, we have Stuart Park, uh, MC, this week. Um, you can contact uh, either uh, uh, Jason or Cody or anyone in the the Nicholas or Bain family and find out where they're going to be. But this week, they're, they're just going to be doing a family hangout. It's going to be at the Nicholas home. They're coming together for prayer and for projects. And uh, Jason was sharing with me that they have some projects to do around their home that are going to actually help it uh, help them be able to invite more people over and, and to connect with others. So make sure you'll join them there. Very practical. Uh, we have the Magnolia Avenue uh, MC with Jonathan and Victoria. They're going to be at Jonathan and Victoria's apartment watching The Chosen. They've had some people that are interested in watching this series with them and getting to actually see Jesus uh, live this completely different life than, than the other people around and calling uh, people to the, the kingdom and demonstrating that kingdom. So you can join them. Uh, they'll just be having a meal and watching The Chosen together. And then uh, the Blythe Oldfield MC. Uh, they're going to be getting together outside at the Langfords just for some hangout time. Bring your own food and come and join them. Uh, hope that you'll do that. Uh, so again, um, we, want, we want to have uh, everyone come. And this, the temptation is going to be to isolate and withdraw. And we have to fight for the ways to connect. And these leaders are all continuing to come up with creative ways to do that in this season. Also want to encourage you to give. Uh, we're talking about the generosity here and uh, both your individual generosity and as a church uh, to be able to uh, bring uh, the, the restoration and, and, and meet the needs of the people around us. You can give online, matthewstable.church, or uh, there's also this thing that people used to use called the mail. And uh, you can get an envelope and write an address on there and slap a stamp on it, and someone will deliver your checks and your payments uh, to make sure that they get here. Uh, for our sending uh, today, I do want to encourage you that uh, if, if you'd like to just, as an as a act of symbolism, raise your right hand and join together as we, as we uh, have this sending. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, scatter and live the church. He didn't say I had to. But... Oh. <laughs>